This is Russell Berger, and you're listening to CrossFit Radio. Today you're going to hear an interview that I recorded with 59-year-old Milton Anthony. Milton does CrossFit at an affiliate near my home in Huntsville, Alabama. Coincidentally, this is the same affiliate that I started in 2008, a few years before taking my full-time position with CrossFit HQ. Milton is a licensed professional counselor, and he's been doing CrossFit with his wife, Linda, for about five months, and they love it. CrossFit has given me back not only um, strength and stamina, but coordination and improved my balance immensely. That's Milton. If you're having trouble understanding him, that's partly because that's just how we talk here in the South. But it's also because Milton's missing some teeth. Actually, Milton's missing a lot more than just teeth. I have a below-the-elbow amputation of my uh, left arm and hand and an above-the-knee amputation of my left leg. Um, I also have bilateral amputations of all the fingers of my existing right hand. I'm severely hearing impaired. I'm also totally blind. I lost all my sense of smell and 10 teeth in an explosion uh, that was an attempt on my life. In case you missed that, Milton's injuries are the result of an attempt on his life that occurred in the early 1980s. It was one of many attempts on his life that year. More on this later. When Milton and his wife first came to CrossFit Huntsville, their trainer, Nathaniel Stearns, told them that he wasn't sure he'd be able to train Milton. Ironically, this wasn't because of Milton's limitations, but because of Nathaniel's. And when we first talked, you said, when you first met Milton, what went through your head was, we can't do this. Oh yeah. We, we wanted to explain to Milton the irony in that we wouldn't be able to help him. We don't have the staff to do one-on-one -on -one coaching. We do a class format, and so all that was unique. We had helped a lot of people over the years with all different types of injuries, but no one had all of the injuries at once. Nathaniel and his wife Mandy's honesty didn't dissuade Milton at all. In fact, it seemed to make him all the more interested in giving CrossFit a try. Him and his wife together can be quite a force. And I actually joked with Mandy after uh, they left and we had set up a time, I said, I think we just got played. I think we're in this whether we want to be or not. And so we started scrambling. So Nathaniel did what anybody in his situation would do. He started searching the internet for help. He knew there were amputees doing CrossFit. He knew there were blind athletes doing CrossFit. But he couldn't find an example of a blind triple amputee doing CrossFit anywhere. It seemed as though Milton was a first. We were frightened for a couple reasons. One, he's got one good limb. I didn't want to hurt his good limb. Um, his wife, who we had hoped would be um, an assistant to him and a coach, we realized herself, like most people, had become very deconditioned and she could not help us in that way. She herself needed help. This actually made things way more complicated. Nathaniel realized that if Linda got hurt doing CrossFit, he was going to be going home with Milton to take care of him. And Linda wasn't in good health. I had type 2 diabetes. I had lots of uh, aches and pains and was not in any kind of shape. I had more or less retired at 62, sat down and wait to die. Nathaniel found himself working from the ground up, literally. One of the first challenges he gave Milton and Linda was called the fire drill. Your house is on fire. I need you to be able to get off the ground and up and out of the house before it burns. So a burpee was the first thing I wanted Linda and Milton to learn how to do. 
how to get down onto the ground, lay there, and now I need you to get back up. Pretty soon, Milton and his wife were hooked. They became regular members of the gym, they were doing CrossFit three times a week, and people started to take notice. I was one of them. I met Milton one day at the gym and I asked if I could record an interview with him. He was thrilled. But to be totally honest, I wasn't ready for the story Milton told me. Milton's story, as you'll hear, is one of violence, crime, heartbreak, and ultimately redemption. This is a story about a guy who shouldn't be alive, but he is. And he's doing what he can to live longer, healthier, and happier through CrossFit. I actually got online, I did a little research, and just stumbled onto a number of articles that basically listed questions you should never ask amputees. <laughs> these are lists of things that were inappropriate. And I, I looked at that and realized that these, hey, these are all my questions. <laughs> so go ahead and ask so and, I, and then I'll tell you, you <laughs> go jump in the lake or whatever. You Great. Know? So, and you knew this was coming. The first one was, what happened to you? Who have we got about three hours? Well, I know people, people <laughs> see you and they probably assume that you're a war vet. Right. Which is not true. Well, uh, it is, but not of U.S. <laughs> military war. The war Milton fought in was between two outlaw motorcycle clubs. The battle between these criminal organizations was intense, bloody, and unpredictable. In other words, it was very much a real war. During this interview, Milton is careful never to identify which club he was a member of or which rival club he was at war with. He's not afraid of retaliation against himself, but against me or those who might listen to this show. During the course of this project, I realized that this was actually a legitimate safety concern. Whatever your idea is of outlaw motorcycle clubs, think less Shriners and more Mexican cartel. Let's talk about the early days of Milton Anthony, um, how you went from high school to a member of a motorcycle club. What's okay. that story look like and sort of what motivated that, that direction in your life? My mother and father divorced when I was uh, 15, and uh, I moved to Louisiana with my father to his birthplace, a little town outside of Shreveport, Louisiana. And that summer, it was great. Uh, my dad, my dad was my best friend when I was growing up, but he wanted me to, uh, in his words, have a better opportunity at an education so instead of going to the school in the little town where he was residing he moved me to Shreveport to his aunt my great aunt and his cousin my second cousin so I could attend a major high school there I took it this wasn't the way that it was but I took that as he didn't want to be around me anymore. This affected Milton dramatically. When he first started high school, he wanted to become a neurosurgeon. He focused on biology and chemistry, and even took two years of Latin. But his perceived rejection by his father led to his rebellion. He started running with the wrong crowd, and eventually dropped out of school in the 11th grade. Then, he discovered motorcycles. The first bike I owned was, was commonly called a Limey. It was a British bike. It was a BSA 650. The first Harley-Davidson I owned was a 1960 engine-style panhead. And anybody that has been around long enough 
to know anything about Harley Davidson's, if you have a panhead, you're going to work on it if you want to ride it at all. Milton gained mechanical skill working on his bikes, but he wasn't content just being any motorcycle bum. He wanted to be the best kind. So like a moth to the flame, Milton was drawn to the outlaw motorcycle clubs known as the One Percenters. If you're not familiar with this term, you're not alone. It was coined in the late 1940s, when the American Motorcycle Association issued a statement in response to criminal activity that had occurred at a motorcycle rally in California. The association stated that 99% of motorcycle riders were law-abiding citizens. Not long after, gangs involved in criminal activity, like the Hells Angels, Outlaws, and Banditos, started referring to themselves as the 1%. The process of becoming a full patch holder in a one percenter club, first you go through a process of being what's called a hang around. And that means you just hanging around, riding with the fellas, uh, doing this and that, but you're seen and um, the fellas get to know you and you get to know them. Then when you get to take the next step, usually a full patch holder will ask you, um, do you want to prospect or probate? Uh, probate is short for probationary. All right. Um, this is a lot of structure. Oh, yeah. This is not a kind of off-the-cuff association. This is like no, a, this I, is like a real military sort of hierarchy. Absolutely. So you became a high-ranking officer, you said. Yes. And what was your role, what was your job as a high-ranking officer? Well, my job title was I was national enforcer. Uh, that meant my duties encompassed. I was uh, the national president's personal bodyguard. I made sure that all the clubhouses in the United States at that time were attack-proof from the other one-percenter club who were engaged in war. And um, the part of my job that I began to fall in love with, it was my duty to rain down intimidation, fear, and pain on anybody or any entity that crossed the club. And I was real good at it. Milton was selected for this job within two years of becoming a full patch holder with his club. He attributes this largely to one thing, his ability to fight. Tell me a little bit about this. Uh, you said one of the reasons they liked you is you could handle yourself. You knew how to fight. Mm -hmm. Where'd you get that? How, how'd that come about? Okay. When I say I could fight, um, even before I started hanging around the club, I got interested in martial art. I obtained a black belt and two different styles of martial art, uh, a form of karate known as taekwondo, it's Korean karate, and a form of uh, a style of Japanese weaponry called bujetsu. And I am a second degree black belt in taekwondo and a third degree black belt in bujetsu. Um, and after I got into the club, I had a tendency to gravitate to what is known in the club as the heavies. The heavies were usually former special operations soldiers, like Green Berets, Rangers, and SEALs. These were men who couldn't function as normal members of society, but found their unique skills appreciated by the motorcycle clubs. 
The heavies supplied Milton with the weapons training and combat knowledge that he didn't learn from martial arts. But more important than learning to fight was keeping those skills sharp. This didn't mean sparring with club brothers, but regularly seeking out violent confrontations with strangers. What I used to do was I might ride my bike 40 miles out of town to some little redneck hick community and stop at the do drop in bar and order a beer and then after i drank that when i was casing the joint out looking around to see who was in there and when i ordered my second beer i'd already spotted the biggest ugliest meanest looking person in there I'd casually walk over to that person and pick a fight with him, beat him into cerebral palsy, and then leave rapidly. Milton did this two to three times per month, and he didn't always use his fists when he beat his victims. When he was significantly outnumbered, Milton would rely on his favorite weapon, nunchucks. Imagine this, it's 1980, you and your friends are drinking at the local bar, when a strange biker walks over, picks a fight with you, and starts attacking you with traditional Japanese weapons. As far as looks of shock or surprise, oh yeah. The, <laughs> they didn't expect some greasy, grimy biker, you know, to be whooping out a pair of, I've heard them call, broom handles held together by a piece of dog chain, you know, and start beating the snot out of people, breaking bones with every blow. As the national enforcer for his club, Milton needed to be ready to fight. It was his job to keep his brothers safe, it was also his job to seek retribution when one of them was murdered. It was this second aspect of his job that led him down the path that nearly killed him. A close friend of mine, who is also a club brother, while he was sitting in a drive-up payphone, that I'll tell you about how long ago that was, um, this other club that we were engaged in war, one or more of their members pulled up behind him and put four rounds of 45 through the back of his head and killed him dead right there at the payphone. Um, my national enforcer, I'm sorry, my national president and my regional president decided to unleash all my wrath and fury on those guys uh, on that other club and sent me to that town in North Carolina and told me basically you send as many of them maggots straight to hell as you can, and the rest of them run out of town. I think it's important to stop at this point and remind you, the listener, that Milton is actually talking about killing people. Because most of the violence Milton is about to describe went unreported to the police, I had a hard time fact-checking individual details. But the information I did find was consistent with what Milton told me. The war in this specific town between these specific motorcycle clubs made headlines in the late 70s and early 80s, News reports describe execution-style killings, ambushes, and bodies found in the trunks of cars. How much of this Milton was responsible for? I don't know. There is no statute of limitations on murder in the United States. And as you'll hear, Milton is careful never to admit to direct involvement in any specific crime. What matters for this story is that Milton's enemies saw him as a serious threat. I hit the ground running as soon as I got there. And the scuttlebutt I heard in town about three months before this 
final attempt was made on my life was there was no less than five contracts on my head um, at $10,000 a contract. Now, in 1981, that was a healthy sum of money. So they wanted me out of the picture bad. I was causing them a lot of problems, uh, a lot of headaches, a lot of heartaches, uh, not to mention a lot of funerals, you know. Um, I can't say that I caused them to have funerals, but um, you could say I knew the people that was doing it very closely. As it turned out, those people in that other club came to know me on eyesight, knew my first wife on eyesight. They even knew my dog on eyesight. They shot but didn't kill the dog. Um, kidnapped my first wife for three days only to let her go because she convinced them that they had the wrong person. And like I said, they made four failed attempts on my life. What were those attempts like? Um, the first attempt, I had been at the bar. I came out, walked over to my car, stuck the key in the door, unlocked it, opened the door, and then remembered, man, I need to ask that guy something else. So I pushed the lock down the door and closed it back, turned around, walked back to the bar, there were two steps leading up to the foyer that led into the front door of the bar. All right. When I put my foot on the top step, that's when my car went kaboom. They had watched me, obviously, come to the bar. When I went inside, they had planted a bomb under the car that was triggered when the timing mechanism when I opened my door. If I had gone ahead and gotten in the car and started it up, I'd have never gotten out of the parking lot. The second attempt on Milton's life was a little more practical. A rival club member, armed with a 12-inch knife, hid behind a row of vehicles parked outside of a different local bar and waited for Milton to leave. He recalls that something must have spooked his attacker because the guy jumped out in front of Milton rather than waiting for him to pass and attacking him from behind. Now, if he'd let me walk by, he'd probably stood a better chance of sinking that knife in my back. But because he stepped in front of me, I proceeded to knock him loose from the knife. And I'm standing over him when somebody at the end of the parking lot hollers, Hey! And when I look up, towards the person that was hollering, the guy on the ground jumps up and punched me in the chin, knocks me down. He takes off running one way. The guy at the end of the parking lot takes off running in an opposite direction. I'm looking back and forth. Finally, I said, the heck with this. I got up, walked over and picked the knife up and went back to the clubhouse. After the knife attack, Milton wore a bulletproof vest everywhere he went. This turned out to be a smart move. So the third attempt, again, I'm coming out of yet again another bar, and as soon as I opened the front door up and stepped out, boom, 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 I caught three rounds in the chest. They shot me back into the bar. The fourth attempt was a little more colorful. 
I was on the way to pick my first wife up. She was a new dancer. Um, and I'm at the outskirts of town, and I hear a car way back behind me like they just floored it. My eyes go up in my rearview mirror, and I see a silhouette of a car, but they didn't have their headlights on. Well, when they get about maybe 75 feet from me and they're not slowing down, I had my eyes glued to my rearview mirror, and I see somebody start to hang out of the passenger side, rear passenger side window. That's when I saw the muzzle flash, and they sprayed my car with an automatic weapon. And as they drove by, and shot all the glass out of the car, you know, front and rear windshield, all the door glass, riddled the car with bullets. But because I was so low, all the bullets missed me. And they were real surprised when I started chasing them. And since my front windshield was already shot out, I'm shooting back at them. But I didn't stop and see if or how many of them I got because I was late. I had to go pick my wife up. So what was... What was their reaction? Tell us the story of that final attempt. All right. Uh, they called the clubhouse where I was and asked for me by my nickname. Um, when I got on the phone, the voice on the other end of the phone said, to Look, if you want to stop all this bloodshed between us, be outside and behind such and such bar tomorrow morning at 530 for peace negotiations and basically hung up after that. And I'm thinking, wow, I've got an opportunity to save everybody's life. Who was I trying to fool? I had an opportunity to end up with a bullet hole in my head, but nonetheless, I wasn't going to pass the opportunity up. As it so happened, there wasn't anybody in town but myself and one other club brother. And... When I walked back into the TV room and told him what had just transpired, he said, no, 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 we ain't going to do that. We ain't going to do that. We, we, we got to wait for everybody else to come back in town, and then we'll address that. And I said, no, man, we're going. You're going to watch my back. Um, I'll place you down the street where you can see the bar and their clubhouse. Um and if I need you, we'll have our walkie-talkies, and um, I'll give you the password, you know, the code word, and you come in blazing. I'm going to sneak around the bar and come in through the backside. Well, at 3.45 the next morning, um, after he had dropped me off about 12 blocks from that bar, I'm sneaking around the bar to make sure it's not another ambush and lay waiting on me. And when I leaped over the property fence into the outside backyard, nobody was there. But what was there calling to me was a real pretty hand-painted motorcycle gas tank sitting atop a concrete block. Now, I recognized the gas tank because you see, it had our club colors painted on it, 
and that gas tank came off of a bike that had been stolen from another club brother a couple of years prior. And I'm thinking, man, I have whipped these guys down. This is a real life peace offering to get me off their back. And when I walk back in the clubhouse and give this gas tank back to its rightful owner, his most prized possession, he and then everybody else in the club's going to know just how cool and how bad I really am. Well, meanwhile, about a hundred yards behind me and off to one side, the president of that local chapter and his vice president were watching me through night vision binoculars. And when I went over and scooped up that gas tank in my hands, that's when they detonated the bomb inside it. Milton had taken the bait. The gas tank he picked up was filled with the equivalent of six sticks of dynamite. The paramedics found his body nearly 75 feet from where the explosion occurred, and they assumed he was dead. But when they went to move Milton's body, he started fighting them, something he doesn't even remember. So they took him to the hospital, where he spent three and a half weeks unconscious. In a case like that, a trauma, uh, when the person regains consciousness, they don't just rush to your bedside and say, okay, Mr. Anthony, you've got this, 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 and this wrong with you. They got to let you figure it out for yourself. I thought my left hand was in a cast, and I didn't figure that it was amputated until the day before they released me out of the hospital because I asked my orthopedic surgeon, when are you going to take my left hand out of this cast? And he told me then, you don't have a left hand. I guess I never thought about what it would be like to wake up in a hospital bed, missing limbs and not knowing how I got there. But Milton experienced something even stranger. He actually thought he could still see. The blast totally annihilated both my eyes. It blew both my eyeballs right out of my head. Um, it blew half the left side of my face off, basically. Um, but when I first regained consciousness, some three and a half weeks later, um, I knew I was in a hospital, but I thought I could still see. I knew something was wrong with my hearing, but I didn't know exactly what. And I thought there was a bunch of birds in my room, <laughs> like starlings, because that's what it sounded like, you know, from the tinnitus I was suffering. The, the doctors were calling it memory vision because my mind was not ready to hear the reality. So I was having mental images of what I thought I could see. I mean, I, like I said, I knew I was in a hospital room, but I never could figure out why they had 10 washing machines in my hospital room because <laughs> that's what I thought I was seeing. To make things even stranger, Milton's experience of vision was sometimes eerily accurate. Um, I got a lot of shrapnel in me, and 
And the doctors came in my hospital room carrying a syringe full of numbing medication and a scalpel. And when they came into my room, I asked them, what do you think you're going to do with that syringe and knife? And my first wife said that both the doctors looked at each other like, what? He's supposed to be totally blind. The next few years were difficult for Milton. He went to a rehab center for the blind, but received little help. They never worked with a blind triple amputee with severe hearing impairment, and they didn't really know how to help him. As a result, Milton became completely dependent on his wife. This put significant strain on their relationship, and so did his wife's desire to have children. Her goals had changed, and she wanted to birth a child, and because of the position that I was holding the gas tank between my legs, now don't fret, I didn't blow anything important off, but it did leave me sterile and I couldn't give her a child. She was getting fed up with doing everything for me. When I say everything, I mean I didn't make a glass of water. All I had to do was say, honey, will you, or honey, would you, and honey did. Well, after a while, uh, almost five years of that, honey got a little bent out of shape over all that, in December of 1986, I had to have major ear surgery on my left ear, something called a mastoidectomy and an eardrum transplant. They did the surgery on the 18th and released me on the 19th of December of that year. My wife picked me back up from the hospital, brought me home, brought me inside, set me on the couch and put a gigantic apple in my hand and then proceeded to tell me more or less, well, it's been fun, but I'll see you later, and she walked out of my life. This was Milton's lowest point. Not only was he being rejected by his wife, he suddenly found himself facing the reality of his disabilities. And that's when he decided, as Milton says, to do the stupidest thing that he'd ever done. And the old car that we had that she got, um, you had to work on it for about 30 minutes in order to drive it for two hours. She went outside to work on it, and I figured, well, and she had told me at that time, I want a divorce. And I figured, okay, I'll make it short and sweet for you. So while she was outside working on the car, I took that whole bottle of pain pills into the kitchen with me and poured about four good fingers of Crown Royal whiskey and swallowed the whole bottle of pills down with the whiskey. And what happened? I got sick as hell. <laughs> really? <laughs> but um, my mistake, I guess you'd say, is I set the empty bottle on the coffee table in front of me. When she came back in to tell me goodbye, she bent down to kiss me and smelled the whiskey on my breath. She said, what have you been drinking? I said, nothing. And she looked down and saw the empty pill bottle. She said, what, what happened to all that pain medication you had? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And she starts yelling and screaming. I stood up and walked into my bedroom, just figured I'd lay down and take a nap and it'd be all over. 
Well, she called my sister, who happened to live down the street from me, and she came up and brought her son and tried. Uh, by this time, I had already grabbed the shotgun and held it across my lap. One thing led to another. The police are at my house, and it looked like the parking lot for the policeman's ball. <laughs> They're all up and down my street in my driveway and my front yard and everything else. And they sent a negotiator in to talk me out of attempting this. And he starts to walk in my bedroom and my sister called him and said, look, my brother knows a lot of stuff and he's real strong. And if you're going to try something, just be careful. And the cop says, I know what I'm doing. So he walks in, starts talking to me, getting closer and closer. Finally, he gets close enough. And, of course, I couldn't see the other two cops sneaking up behind me. Um, and when he nods and gives them all the word, he reaches down and grabs the gun I had cradled in my arms. And one cop grabs one arm and the other grabs another and I just locked my arms and held them at bay for almost 12 minutes. Um, when I finally said, all right, and I let go of the shotgun, <laughs> the cop bounced off the wall behind me and almost back into my lap. This cost Milton a ride to the hospital in an ambulance, getting his stomach pumped, and six months of psychotherapy. Milton recovered from this ordeal, but still faced the enormous obstacle of daily life. His complete dependence on his wife had allowed him to get by without ever facing his limitations or really learning how to take care of himself. He didn't even know where his own clothes were. He called his counselor in tears and was sent a rehab teacher to help him learn the basic life skills that he should have learned at the Center for the Blind. The rehab teacher showed up at my house and she started working with me. And within the next 18 weeks, um, she taught me how to live independently. By that I mean how to turn my dirty underwear back into clean underwear, fold it, uh, put it where I knew where it was, and all the rest of my clothes, um, grocery shop, how to mark the stuff with little pieces of scotch tape, and how to organize it so I knew where it was, how to cook, how to clean my house, how to take care of my animals, uh, all these things. And I gained my independence back, and more so to prove it to myself more than anybody else, I decided not only was I doing this, I could do it, and I chose to live completely and totally by myself for 12 years before I allowed myself to get involved with another relationship with a woman. While living on his own, Milton earned a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling from the University of Tennessee, and he began his career as a professional counselor. So just to recap, Milton survived the explosion, lost three of his limbs and his eyesight, gained the ability to live independently, and is now doing CrossFit. That's a pretty incredible transformation, but there's another transformation Milton underwent as well. Milton changed from a dangerous and violent member of a criminal motorcycle club to a man dedicated to helping counsel others through substance abuse and trauma. 
This part of Milton's transformation isn't physical or external, so it can be easy to miss. And it's also not something Milton focuses on. But when I pressed him for some sort of explanation for how he changed as a person, he told me about his prodigal son-like return to the Christian faith. My mother and father didn't raise me to be national enforcer of the second largest 1% motorcycle club in the world. I was brought up in a, uh, a Christian home. Uh, my father was the senior deacon of the church I was baptized in. My mother kept the nursery and my sister played the piano. Um, me, I was a church hellion, but nonetheless, um, I had gotten away from that and um, through all my endeavors and everything else, but I realized that there was something missing in my life. Besides a, a woman, I, I'm something even more important than that. So a friend of mine came to my apartment one day and said, you have got to come with me to this new church I started going to. They're having a bluegrass gospel jamboree this coming Thursday. And I thought, hmm, okay, yes, I hear you, Lord. So we went to that church, and as soon as I stepped foot across the threshold, my God spoke to my heart and told me, this is where I want you. Milton also seems to draw a significant amount of the joy in his life from his wife, Linda, who he met at the same church. Linda is great. She's wonderful. She is not only the love of my life, but she is my soulmate. One of the things, and just one, and there are many, many, but one of the things that I love about this woman so much is the fact that when we first started dating, she asked me, how will I know when you need help? And I looked at where I thought she was and said, when I ask you for it. She said, you mean I don't have to try to do anything until you ask me for help? And I told her, please don't. Let me try to do it myself first. And she has been so wonderful about that. She doesn't try to snatch something out of my hands and say, oh, let me do that, or whatever. She'll wait patiently until I ask her, honey, kid, do you please help me with this, or whatever. What do you got planned for them today? So today, we'll be starting with uh, Milton Scale for double unders, which are gonna be jumps, jumping in place, holding on In his the six months at CrossFit Huntsville, Milton has defied pretty much everyone's expectations, except maybe his own. I've personally seen people with all types of conditions and disabilities do CrossFit, but Milton is unique, not just because of the number or severity of his limitations, but because of how hard he's willing to work to push past them. This doesn't mean things are always easy. Transition is a big deal because we have to hook into equipment, lead from equipment to equipment. When you say hook in, you're talking about Milton's... The prosthetic arm. Prosthetic so we arm. got to clamp that in and out, and then obviously i got to lead him from spot to spot, so there's no running from spot to spot. So I really try to get stuff where we can move quickly um, from point A to point B. 
Milton's prosthetic arm, which allows him to hold onto bars, kettlebells, and other objects, offers its own challenges. The device is so strong that if Nathaniel doesn't wrap thick protective padding around the rower handle, Milton will rip it apart as he pulls, something they figured out the hard way. One of the things I've learned about Milton is that he handles the stress of challenges like these by cracking jokes with the people around him. He does this to make them more comfortable with his disability, and I've seen it work. Usually whenever I help him up, he lets me know I'm pretty strong for a little fella. All right, right there, Milton. Good. Close. All right, 50 jumps. So these are the equivalent double unders. Double unders, yeah. If I take time to tie his shoe, he'll yell at me and tell him I'm messing up his time. People have told me, um, why are you doing that? That's for professional athletes. You're going to get hurt doing that. That's dangerous. And all this rigmarole. And I have to tell those people, poo-poo. It's no more dangerous than walking down the street. Yes, I have balance issues because I, I wear an above-the-knee amputation prosthesis. Okay, but I have learned how to balance myself. Um, I've learned how to balance the weight bar um, to where I can do the exercises. Um, it's a matter of learning, training, and practicing. Um, and the more the, you practice, the better at it you get, the stronger you become, and it becomes easier to do. Um, if CrossFit was only for professional athletes, you wouldn't have the crowd there that you do every time we go. Milton is an inspiration for everyone who thinks CrossFit is only for the elite athlete. But he's also an inspiration to the other members of CrossFit Huntsville who watch him and Linda train every week. I feel like when we watch them work out, if we feel like we're tired or we feel like we're kind of shamming a little bit, you see what Milton's doing and it kind of makes you want to push that much harder. When you see him working out, you really don't see his disabilities at all. So it's pretty awesome. And it makes me want to work harder in the gym because if he can do it, then I should definitely be able to do it. The last question I have for you, and I saved this for last for a reason. Okay. Um, if you could go back and you could change the events of that night when you picked up that improvised explosive device and basically had your life changed forever, if you could go back and alter that moment so that it didn't happen, would you do that? I thought about that an awful lot. And I have to say, no, I wouldn't. Because by the, all the things happening to me that have happened, it has given me uh, the awareness of first the determination that I do possess, and secondly, how to tap on my spiritual and internal power and then focus that power and use it to a productive way. If I had not been injured to the point that I am, I would not slow down at all and I'd be in one of two places right now, either in the cemetery 
or in the penitentiary serving, uh, serving multiple life sentences for multiple murders. By going through that, I realized life is too precious to throw away uh, by my hand or by somebody else's. So it gave me insights, and I think I know it has helped me be a better counselor as a result of going through that. That's it for this episode of CrossFit Radio. If you'd like to find out more about Milton Anthony, you can visit his website at speakermiltonanthony.com. That's all one word. Special thanks to CrossFit seminar staff trainer Sarah Wilkinson for helping me with this episode. And of course, thanks to CrossFit Huntsville and Milton and Linda Anthony. This show is produced by Sevan Matosian and written and edited by myself. If you have a story you'd like us to tell, or you know someone who does, please email me, russell at crossfit.com. That's R-U-S-S-E-L-L at CrossFit. And thanks for listening.